A Coming of Wizards by Michael E. Reynolds Chapter 7 Non-Local Awareness We have established the art of leaning as a method to take us to a state of mind from which we can get grasp of the concept of non-local awareness. The more the art of leaning is understood and actually applied, the greater our chances of experiencing non-local awareness on something other than just an intellectual level. Non-local awareness can be called a dance. This is a dance that everything is doing with everything else. If we take the concept of spherical vision and add to it the dimension of time, all time including past, present and future, this approaches non-local awareness. If we take the object being observed by spherical vision and make it all that is, this approaches non-local awareness. Maneuvering, merging, spherical vision, leaning, and inclusion are all methods of approaching a state of non-local awareness. A few decades ago, when the world's best physicists found themselves in the arena of mutual participation, see chapter 4, they stumbled onto something they termed non-local awareness. Friedhof Capra, author and physicist, was the first to point out in his book, The Tower of Physics, that mystics in the Far East have been speaking for years about this phenomenon, non-local awareness, that modern science is just stumbling onto from a completely different direction. Any time two vastly different schools, such as physics and mysticism, find themselves in the same arena, we have truly found an unarguable phenomenon worth writing. The physicists came across it as they explored the subatomic world and found that matter was, at its lowest common denominator, almost nothing at all. It was in this nothingness that non-local awareness was observed. There is a well-known experiment that first revealed non-local awareness to, among several others, Albert Einstein. This experiment is known as the Bell Experiment, which is discussed in depth in many books about quantum physics. However, it is presented in terms that are difficult for the average person who is not familiar with quantum physics to deal with. I will therefore attempt to summarize what the physicists found in this experiment in terms that do not require a thorough background in quantum physics. A basic understanding of this experiment can provide a grasp of non-local awareness. Basically, they found that all particles and forces in the subatomic world, the makeup of the atom, are interrelated. All is in each and each is in all. Specifically, they found that how and when one observes a particular phenomenon in the subatomic world has an effect upon that phenomenon. The observer is actually a participant. We must remember that we are made up of the subatomic world, Thus, we are actually trying to observe a dance that we, in fact, are dancing. The principle of exclusion, discussed in the previous chapter, puts forth that no electron can occupy the same state as another electron. The state, in the case of this experiment, has to do with the electric charge of the electron, which is brought about by the direction of its spin. Therefore, as a result of the exclusion principle, if we have two electrons in a system 
an electron A is observed to be spinning up, then electron B will be spinning down, since it can't be in the same state as A. However, electron A does not always react to the observer or participant with the same direction of spin. This, in turn, results in electron B knowing the direction of spin of electron A, and consequently being found to spin in the opposite direction. This knowing takes place no matter what the distance between the electrons is, be it 0.002 of an inch or 2,000 miles. The effect is instantaneous. This is found not to be a message transfer even at the speed of light. It is an inherent knowing, not a communication, but rather a non-local awareness. Physicists have known about non-local awareness for years, but what it means relative to the current human condition and how to wedge it into our already rigid reality are questions they have not been able to answer at this point. Mystics have alluded to the all-knowingness in many of their experiences for centuries, but they have not really been able or willing to put it out there in such a way that the average non-adept person could relate to it as an aspect of his or her everyday life. The teachings of the Bible even refer to this phenomenon in that God is all places at all times. This kind of statement, up until now, has been deemed rather abstract and at best available only to God. However, it is a beginning to appear more real and available to us now that modern physics, ancient mysticism and traditional religion all seem to be unfolding the same story. I believe that since we're made up of electrons, this phenomenon, this ability that they have to be non-locally aware, is available to us. We are, however, currently asleep to this realm. Carl Jung speaks of something he calls synchronicity. This is knowing someone was coming or knowing something was happening somewhere without knowing where this information came from. Most of us as humans have experienced something like this a few times in our lives. This synchronicity is an indication that non-local awareness is available to us if we want to look for it. Recent brain research has led us to the right brain and left brain discovery, whereby the left brain is more concerned with logic and the right brain is more concerned with intuition. They are linked by a small bridge called the corpus callosum, which, if severed, reveals the difference or individuality in the two brains. Many straightforward experiments illustrate a conflict between the two brains without the synthesizing effect of the bridge between the two brains, the corpus callosum. Modern-day living patterns, i.e. dogmas, really call upon the left brain logic much more than the right brain intuition. This is apparent when we observe that male energy is commonly associated with logic and female energy with intuition, and we live in a male-dominated society. The point here is that as a society, our lack of balance between male and female energy, which is associated with our lack of balance between left and right brain use, leaves us in a condition where we are basically not including a very important aspect of ourselves in our accepted reality. Therefore, we are in effect excluding phenomena such as non-local awareness from our reality.
So it stands that inclusion, as discussed in the previous chapter, is one of the first steps towards a non-local awareness. In this case, inclusion of right brain, inclusion of female energy and inclusion of intuition. Our exclusion of these principles renders us inert, thus our general lack of maneuverability. The electron not only includes the opposite electrical charge in its reality, it can become the opposite charge. That is to say that any electron is capable of either an up or down spin state. It is this maneuverability of the electron that renders its whole and thus non-locally aware of all the parts of the whole. Inclusion and maneuverability between poles can also render us whole and thus non-locally aware. We have found for ourselves a polar reality, positive and negative, male and female, right and left, good and bad, dark and light. We have a tendency to exclude one half of each of these polar pairs through definitions put forth in our accepted dogma. If we fully include and accept both aspects of these various spin states in electron language, we will become whole. This wholeness, as it expands, will shatter every crystallized dogma that stands between us and the God who is in all places at all times, the all-knowingness, the non-local awareness. Dancing To include the opposite aspects of a polarized reality is like dancing with death. It takes openness, sensitivity and guts. Dancing with death is radically different than seeking death or resisting death. It is the inclusion of death that makes one capable of dancing with it. Death is simply the polar opposite of life, and like all our other dualities, we must include both life and death in our wholeness to really be whole. There is much more to us than just our life. There is also our death. There is a dance between two electrons of opposite charge, each with the capacity to be the other. Likewise, there is a dance between life and death. Each has a capacity to be the other. Non-local awareness exists as a result of this dance. We cannot simply be one of the partners in the dance and experience non-local awareness. Further, we cannot experience non-local awareness by being both partners. We must become the dance itself. The journey from an individual, insecure, highly polarized human being to the becoming of a dance between energy and matter, between life and death, is indeed an awesome journey. The art of leaning is a way. Spherical vision can illuminate the way. Maneuvering, merging, inclusion and expansion are dynamic steps of the dance. But again, it is the becoming of the dance itself that results in non-local awareness. This means that non-local awareness is simply not available to a polarized human being. Constant conscious application of the various dynamic steps of the dance will eventually result in a sort of depolarization, which is the beginning of wholeness. This wholeness is fundamentally a state of mind. In other words, once humankind attains a state of mind that is whole, the physical manifestation of that wholeness will be entirely different than the physical manifestation of polarization that presently prevails. Therefore, 
as we move toward a non-local awareness, we will move out of the human condition as we know it. The question is, are we too attached to the human condition to do this? We can begin to dilute our attachment to the human condition by observing the wholeness and the dancing that has already been going on in our environment. We can thereby recognize that we are but a small part of the wholeness that will go on with or without humans. This fact just might provide us with the humility we need to begin the journey. Long ago, the earth was covered with what has been called the primordial soup. The atmosphere of the earth was radically different then, with almost no oxygen. We couldn't have existed. A simple form of algae had evolved and was growing without anything eating it or competing with it in any way. Soon, the story goes, the primordial soup all over the earth was filled with this algae and that took in carbon dioxide and put out oxygen. The oxygen was basically a pollutant to the carbon dioxide atmosphere that supported the algae. The algae proliferated unchecked for so long that the oxygen level of the atmosphere reached a crisis level for the algae. The waste product of the algae, oxygen, was polluting it out of existence. Does this sound familiar? Strangely enough, right at this time of crisis, animals began to evolve. They just happened to breathe in oxygen and breathe out carbon dioxide. Thus, one of the many dances of earthly existence began that is still going on today. This is the dance between animals and plants, each breathing out what the other breathes in, and each breathing in what the other breathes out. Plants provide the oxygen in the atmosphere for us to breathe. They are part of the whole picture of our existence. They are part of us and we are part of them. Every breath we take is an exchange with plants. If we realize our connections with our immediate environment, we will tend to include it more as an aspect of ourselves. This is called local awareness. Local awareness provides a graphic, tangible mode of the much more expansive, non-local awareness. Humankind is, at this point, a failure in local awareness. Or maybe we're successful in that we have learned by doing all the wrong things. At any rate, this obviously puts non-local awareness completely out of reach from our present state of mind. However, local awareness can stretch to non-local awareness the way success stretches to confidence. The magic is the same. Local awareness is recognizing the wholeness and the interrelatedness of all that exists on the planet. There was some consciousness, the wizard energy, that evolved animals to balance out the crisis oxygen level of the algae long ago. We are in a similar situation now, with our various human wastes and pollutants in the atmosphere and the waters of our planet. Conscious evolution would have us do something to maintain the balance, to dance with our garbage, recycle it and or transform it, like the animals transformed the oxygen back into carbon dioxide for the algae, and later other plants to thrive on. Nature creates these dances, and one of them just happened to include us. Conscious evolution would have us now create our own dances with nature. We can orchestrate these dances as a result of local awareness. 
Local awareness is a tangible opportunity to use the same steps of the dance, maneuvering, merging, inclusion and expansion, that will eventually lead us to non-local awareness. The art of leaning can be used as a way, and spherical vision can be used as an illumination of that way. In other words, learning to live and dance with the processes of this planet is but an exercise in techniques used eventually to transcend the planet. We will only enter the heavens through the earth. Essence Relating A good way to lean towards an understanding of non-local awareness is to continue to explore local awareness. Let's look at a tree, a horse and a human. These creatures all are potentially within the realm of our local awareness, although sometimes we're not aware of anything but ourselves. These creatures all have life, being alive, in common. We relate to these creatures relative to the surface form. Rarely do we penetrate beyond the surface form. If we did, we would reach a common denominator that could be called essence. This common denominator is physically real in that all three living things are, in their lowest molecular breakdown, made up of the DNA molecule which is a product of the carbon atom. So there's a basic common essence of all living things. Of course, the carbon atom has much in common with all the other atoms. Thus, we have also a basic common essence of all things. The point here is that there are various levels of essence one can relate to, as opposed to simply relating to the surface image of all that one sees. Essence relating takes us deeper into what we are relating to. Essence relating is a facet of merging. Those that are adept at essence relating go straight through the dogmas, egos, fears and brick walls. Their ability to penetrate is matched by their ability to be penetrated. Essence relating is truly an interaction. We can make a graphic analogy of essence relating to help make the intellectual concept a tangible possibility. Let's take the three figures, the tree, the horse and the human, and imagine that they are wax figures. Each of these figures has a tiny quartz crystal inside. Quartz crystal has a certain vibration which is why it is used to power small clocks, watches, crystal radios, and so on. Now, imagine how you would relate to each of these wax figures based on their surface image, their form. You're not relating to their essence, the crystal vibration inside. You're only relating to surface form. The appearance of the surface form actually dictates your reaction. This is usually the case in our reality. We don't relate, we react. Our reactions are based on the appearance surface form. The three different forms dictate three different reactions. Then, if the individual figures are beautiful, healthy, friendly, ugly, and so on, these different conditions of the form further complicate but still dictate our reaction. Now, let's imagine a significant increase in temperature and the wax figures begin to melt. As the surface of the forms begins to change, we find that we weren't really relating. We were just reacting, because our reactions changed with the changing form. True interactive essence relating doesn't change with the form. It is constant, 
regardless of the surface form. As the temperature increases and all the forms melt into blobs, we are appalled and repelled because these blobs do not fit our interdogmatic image of what these creatures should be. We learn something else, that is, that most of our reactions themselves are simply from interdogmatic and interego projections. So, we do not know how to relate. We simply react, and our reactions themselves are not from what is out there, but rather what we project out there. Now, the temperature continues to rise, and all the wax melts away. There's nothing left but four identical vibrating crystals unchanged by the temperature. In our analogy, these crystals were the essence of the wax forms. If we were involved in essence relating in the first place, we would have penetrated all four figures to an essence level and found their quality and equality. We would then have related to this essence throughout all the temperature changes and found no change in our interaction throughout the changes in form. This is called stable interaction and there is much power here. This analogy suggests that we avoid reaction completely and that we learn to relate on an essence level to experience stable interaction. Stable interaction is a local awareness and a giant leap towards non-local awareness. The key here is in finding the essence of other living things and eventually all other things, both living and non-living. I submit that if we simply find the essence in ourselves, our energy band, we will know where to look for it and other things. Finding our own essence will automatically tune us to the essence of other things, the same way being quiet allows us to hear the singing of the birds. We must begin living on an essence level to relate on an essence level. Sustenance equals essence. This calls for the inclusion of all things into the network of one sensory perception, as essence is not singular. The essence of life, for example, includes the tree, the horse and the human. The essence of matter includes all that is. Relating and living on an essence level begins with the melting of wax of one's own form. If we learn to relate to our own essence in this way, we will know where to look for the essence in the universe. It is the ultimate awareness that the two are the same that will eventually bring us to the realization that we are free. Leaning and major steps. When a child is learning to dive off a diving board, It usually leans over the edge to a certain critical point where gravity, that organizer of mass, takes over the lean and pulls the child into the water. Without the initial leaning on the part of the child, gravity would never have pulled it into the water. If you do not lean, gravity will not take you. God won't either. The child, through leaning, set itself up for natural force to take over and bring about a major leap in its life, the first leap into water. Likewise, humanity can lean towards a certain realm, such as non-local awareness, thus setting itself up for natural phenomenon to take over and bring about a major leap in its evolution. In this case, the natural phenomenon is consciousness, the organizer of energy. Both leaning and major leaps are factors hand-in-hand in, hand in the process of evolution. 
The following quotation from a National Geographic article by Kenneth P. Weaver, entitled The Search for Our Ancestors, is scientific verification of this. Just how evolution works on the subject of much discussion among today's biologists. One idea is that evolution is gradually taking place all the time, leaning, because of mutations and changing environmental influences. Another proposal is that long periods of relative evolutionary stability are punctuated by sudden appearances of new species, major leaps. This hypothesis is called punctuated equilibrium. It may well be, many scientists say, that both kinds of evolution are in operation. This is much like the critical mass theory in physics, when something reaches a critical point where it changes form and position. The critical point observation lends impetus to the art of leaning. Leaning itself is sometimes too slow to provide enough visible change to encourage the leaner. However, knowledge of the critical point that can, as a result of leaning, literally take us the rest of the way, underscores the power of leaning. It is like hitching a ride on a natural phenomenon. We would never catch this ride if we never leaned towards it. Few are the children who simply leap without leaning into the water of continuous evolution. If we are to make the leap, we must lean and solicit unarguable phenomenon, natural forces, to give us that free ride. Leaning simply puts us in position to catch this ride. With this in mind, continued ever-expanding local awareness is the immediately tangible leaning process that will place us in position for the leap into non-local awareness. Let's look at another example of local awareness as it borders with the realm of non-local awareness. This is a place near that critical point where we make the leap. Imagine that you own a fairly delicate pot plant that cannot handle very intense sunlight. If placed in the intense sunlight, it simply shrivels and dies. It is a cloudy day and you're leaving your house for work. The weatherman said it is going to be cloudy all day, so you set your pot plant on the windowsills of an open window for some fresh air and maybe a bit of gentle rain. Now, you have had this plant for some time and are aware that it produces beautiful fragrant blossoms. You have, in the past, mistakenly left it in the sun and seen it begin to shrivel. You have also seen how well unhappy it is in a shady spot with lots of water and you have seen and enjoyed its many fragrant blossoms. Thus, you have an attachment and actually a relationship with this plant. You have included it in your sphere of awareness. It has made its needs and its gifts known to you and you have accepted both into your selfness. Unlike a more complicated human relationship, You have no blocks in your relating to the plant because it simply responds to what you give it in the most predictable way without any real trips of its own. It is clear and honest about its needs and its gifts. Now, you have left your house on this cloudy day with the plant on the open windowsill. As it is the case quite often, the weatherman was wrong and the clouds totally dissipate and the sun comes out bright and strong. You are far on the other side of town, but you see that the sun is out all over the valley. 
You feel it on your skin and you see it with your eyes. As quickly, actually the same instant, as you feel the warmth of the sun on your skin, you know instantaneously that your plant is shriveling up from intense sun. There was no actual communication from the plant to you, but because the essence of the plant has been included in your sphere of consciousness, you know it's dying. Therefore, you know what is going on in another place due to inclusion of a living thing in that place into your sphere of consciousness. This is local awareness as it approaches non-local awareness. It is not fully non-local awareness because you physically saw that both you and the plant were susceptible to the same stimuli. However, without physically seeing the plant, you knew that it was dying because it had been included in your sphere of consciousness. The principle of local awareness is including things, people, the earth, or whatever into your sphere of consciousness. Or a better way of saying it is expanding one's sphere of consciousness out to include, without discrimination, all things. This must be done slowly. This is the slow lean towards the critical point where the gravity of another level of consciousness will pull you on over into it, a major leap. Small steps, slow leaning, are rarely lost because they represent a growth process. Giant steps are like bending the plant discussed in the previous chapter. The growth process gives the small steps more mass than giant steps that leave a lot of untrodden ground between them. This untrodden ground, consequently, is not enough to get to the critical point. The only real giant step that can be taken, the major leap, must be taken in alignment, hand in hand, with a natural phenomenon, such as the child riding gravity, as in the previous example. Thus, energy riding facilitates major leaps. The leaning is the aligning of oneself with the current. The leap is when the current takes you. It is this alchemy of movement that brings about the quantum leaps in evolution that brings us closer and closer to God. Leaning, constant leaning towards universal vision, the current of evolution, the energy band, is what puts us in position to make these leaps. The major difference between our leaning and that of the banana plant in the previous chapter is that the plant leans in one direction and we must lean in all directions at once. This expanding out in all directions at once is much like the expansion of the universe that has been taking place since the Big Bang, if we assume that the Big Bang theory is correct. In this respect, we are indeed models of the universe in which we live. We are meant to align ourselves with the expanding universe and actually ride the phenomenon of the expanding universe. Now that we are quite sure that the universe is indeed expanding, our writing of this phenomenon could in itself reveal what we long to know about the universe, where it came from and where it is going. This is a way of the wizard, to align with an unarguable phenomenon, write it, and then simply examine oneself to thereby understand the previously ununderstood phenomenon. To fully understand a frog, you must become a frog. Expansion, the art of leaning in all directions at once, can be examined graphically to enlighten us on the various obstacles or blocks that might present themselves to the expanding entity. 
The adjacent diagram illustrates an expanding sphere with various blocks all around. The expanding sphere represents expanding human consciousness. Notice that when the sphere is small relative to the spaces between the blocks, figure 1, there are obviously less blocks to encounter. However, when the sphere becomes larger relative to the spaces between the blocks, figure 2, more blocks are encountered. This is to say that the greater the consciousness, the more obstacles to keep it from getting still greater, whereas a tiny sphere of consciousness can expand quite a bit without even encountering a single block. Now, with respect to these blocks, I am suggesting that consciousness, the sphere, expands only as far as the nearest block. That is to say, if one block is in the way on one side of the sphere, then the whole sphere is stopped from further expansion, because consciousness is an all-inclusive, pure whole. It does not simply expand on the other side from the block or around the block. The block, whenever it occurs, stops, switches off, terminates expansion until the block is dissolved, so to speak. The broader the expansion, the more possible blocks. This results in a radical slowing down of expansion as the sphere gets larger. Keep in mind that the sphere is really a multidimensional expansion, beyond a simple sphere. We must also remember that at any given point we could experience a major leap in this expansion process. A major leap further facilitates expansion and consequently additional shifts or leaps. However, in between the leaps, the ongoing multidimensional leaning or expansion is a must to keep one, one species, one individual, constantly maneuvering into a position to make another evolutionary leap. Thus, we can consciously bring about or participate in our own evolution. The instant we stop leaning, expanding, we have all but eliminated our chances for a leap and consequently our evolution is at a halt. The universe will simply go on without us. Among other things, this analogy shows us that the dissolving of blocks is a major issue in the continuing growth or evolution of humankind. These blocks can be dogmas, prejudices, judgments, fears, limits of languages, and so on. In order to present a model for dissolving these blocks, we will look at that more tangible relative of consciousness, gravity. There's a discussion of the relationship between gravity and consciousness in Chapter 2. Gravity itself is very much unclear to even modern physics, but the following explanation will stand on the shoulders of modern physics and step from there to the peaks of intuition. Gravity, a result of mass. Gravity is an organizer of mass. Objects of mass experience a gravity. The greater the mass and density, the greater the gravity. Figure 1 illustrates a two-dimensional diagram of the principle of gravity. We have a steel ball placed between two one-inch wide rubber bands stretched between point A and point B. Now notice that the rubber bands are slightly stretched and displaced by the mere existence of the steel ball. Figure 2 shows the steel ball growing in size. 
The more the ball grows, greater mass, the more tightly it stretches the rubber bands. Thus, the more pressure is placed on the ball by the rubber bands. The greater the mass, the greater the gravity. In this analogy, the steel ball represents matter, and the rubber band represents that void of condition out of which matter is formed. In the words of modern physics, nothing exists here, but anything can appear at any time. This is to say, nothing is here, but everything is potentially here. The materialization of something, matter, rather creates a pressure against this void of potentiality. The larger and more dense the materialized object, the greater the pressure, thus gravity. This analogy must, of course, be projected into three dimensions where the ball has manifested in a block of rubber, so to speak. The very existence of the ball results in pressure on the ball. Gravity, a result of density. Now, the reason for constructing this kind of model is to arrive at a simple method of looking at density, an aspect of matter. In more dense matter, the atoms are more tightly packed, and in less dense matter, they are less tightly packed. More space, or actually more of the void of potentiality within the matter itself. This is suggesting that all matter has some of the void of potentiality within it. For example, there's a certain interpenetration of matter and the void of potentiality. This in turn suggests that matter is but a condensation of the void of potentiality. As density of matter increases, the more gravity, figure 3. Consequently, the void of potentiality actually penetrates less dense matter more and mixes with the gravity of the mass, seen in figure 4 on the previous page. Thus, we have the modern physics knowledge of the greater density of mass, the greater the gravity. Just as it is the lack of density in matter that allows it to absorb and to be absorbed by the void of potentiality, it is the lack of density in our selfness, our reality or ego, both individual and collective, that allows us to absorb or not to be absorbed by the various blocks that obstruct the expansion of our consciousness. See chapter 5. The discussion of consciousness in the beginning of chapter 2 outlined three forms of consciousness. Human consciousness, life consciousness, and angel consciousness. Of these three, human consciousness is the most dense, with angel consciousness being the least dense. Therefore, a less dense form of consciousness allows more interpenetration between us and our various blocks. This makes for less resistance to expansion. We find here that it is really ourselves, not our blocks, that must be dissolved to allow continuous movement and expansion through the universe. The relationship between matter and the void of potentiality, the interpenetration, the what is and the what isn't, results in the phenomenon of gravity. The relationship between life and God, the interpenetration, the what is and the what isn't, results in the phenomenon of consciousness. We consciously give up our density, ourselves, to expand. As we become less dense, we become more locally aware. As we become even less dense, we become non-locally aware. As we become even less dense, we cease to exist. We have consciously come home to God.
density. If we were to construct a scale model of an atom, the nucleus would be the size of a cherry in the middle of a St. Peter's dome in Rome, and electrons would be orbiting or swarming in a rough orbit the size of the dome itself, 140 feet diameter. The void or space between the cherry and the dome is the void of potentiality as it exists within or penetrates the atom. This can also be said as the components of the atom exist within the void of potentiality. This illustrates the interpenetration of the void and the atom, the common denominator of matter. This interpenetration is a fundamental attitude of the universe. In some forms of matter, the atoms are packed together very tightly, thus squeezing the electrons into a closer orbit and reducing the volume of the void within the atom. This is greater density. So it stands that there are different conditions of matter with respect to density. Greater density usually results in less interaction and more pressure, tension and heat. There are also different conditions available to humanity with respect to density. The greater the density of our ego, our collective dogma, our definition of self, the less interaction and the more pressure, tension and heat. Our density is a state of mind that can become less dense by choice, the choice to lean into a less dense condition. The basic result of this choice is the ability to dilute and eventually evaporate oneself. Thus begins the process of learning to die before we die. This evaporation or dissolving allows us to pass through and interact with the obstacles that block our expansion. It also allows us to interact with the void of potentiality, the matrix. The act of becoming less and less dense allows expansion through blocks and into the void. Thus, we slowly expand and include and become included in all that is. Much the same way cream, when poured into coffee, includes and is included in the cup of coffee. We simply give up our defined position, our localness, and absorbed and are absorbed by both the local and the non-local. Our awareness of this process can lead us to a condition of non-local awareness.